Hey everyone, welcome to the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. And today I'm very excited. We have an amazing guest. Uh, her name is Shung and she is at savemysense.com. She also goes by Save My Sense on Instagram. That's where we kind of connected. Um, so I really am excited to have her share her story with you guys. I think it's going to make an impression and be able to really help uh, a lot of people. So, Shung, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris, for having me. All right. Um, so, yes, that's, uh, your story is amazing. It inspired me, and that's what this show is all about, to bring inspiration to others. So, if you can, just go a little bit into your story and, and tell us why, um, you know, I think you're so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you are speaking too highly of me. Um, <laughs> What I want to want people to know is that I believe that financial independence and financial success is attainable by many people, especially in the United States, provided that you put yourself into the right mindset. And how I sort of got this journey all figured out, it, it's a lifelong journey. I came into the United States as an immigrant along with my parents. You know, we didn't have a lot of money at all. My parents worked very hard, taught me the value of a dollar. So with my very first paycheck, I always learned to live on less than I earn, save the difference, and invest. Investing being the key word. And, yes. you know, was kind of, you know, doing the thing for, for many years. Then I met my husband, Mr. Save My Sense. And when we got married, we decided that, gosh, you know, what if we could exit the rat race and, and never be derailed by one or both of us losing our income? What would that need to look like? That's when we decided to live off of the lower of our two incomes while living in a very high cost city in Manhattan, no less. And while we did that, that meant that our savings rate, pre-tax savings rate was you know, over 50%. And doing that consistently for a couple of years, investing the difference um, meant that we reached a net worth off of which we could retire early uh, or you know, be work optional for the rest of our lives. And that... I didn't even know that that was called fire back then. <laughs> um, I just thought that we were just being really, really frugal. And then later I, I learned about the blog, Mr. Money Mustache. And I started blogging about my, my own experience. And that's sort of how I fell into the personal finance realm of Instagram and blogs and all of that. Awesome. How, how did you end up in Manhattan, uh, such a high cost of living area? How did that happen? Yeah. So I left China at the age of three. I lived in Europe until I was 10. And then I oh, came okay. to the United States at the age of 10. Um, you know, I always grew up around big cities. So I've always been drawn to metropolitan areas. I worked in Boston after college. I went to business school in Chicago and I had set my sights on San Francisco after that, which I did. I landed a tech job in San Francisco. When I met my husband, that was in business school. We were long distance. He was in New York. I was in San Francisco. Long distance sucks. Hate long distance. <laughs> yes. Nearly broke up our relationship, but we managed to keep it together, got married. <laughs> then we looked at both of our careers and realized that New York is just a more flexible place for people like us. There's just a lot more opportunity. Yes, it's very high cost, but it made more sense. And the fact that we're cosmopolitan in, in personality, we do love being in a more international, diverse location. And we love culture and the arts in New York City. I mean, there's no comparison to <laughs> anywhere else in the United States. So. Well, and, and I have family in New York, so I, I completely understand. And I'm, I'm up there all the time. So I see what you see as well. It's, it's an amazing city. Um, what's going on right now is, is a bit unfortunate, of course. But, yep. um, you know, New Yorkers, they have a sense of uh, a way of bouncing back. And, and um, they're very prideful. So I'm sure everything is going to recover soon and, um, you know, be better than ever. But Touch on kind of how you managed to achieve such a high savings rate. Um, was there any tips or tricks or advice that you would give for someone who has, you know, that similar lifestyle, but also wants to achieve fire and kind of sees it as um, almost impossible because things are so expensive? Yeah. If you want to get to really high savings rates in expensive cities, a high income is going to help. When I say that I believe in financial independence and financial success for many people, I don't mean that you need to live in an expensive city. In fact, 
um, when I coach people, when I talk to other people, for many of them, I say, look, your job is very portable. I know, you, you know, you would like to be in the city, but if your dream is financial success, perhaps, you know, consider going to a suburb or going to a slightly lower cost city across the U.S. where your job is still in demand. In New York City, the base rent is just so high to begin with. Unless you find really cool, unique opportunities such as uh, a rent-stabilized apartment, which is what my husband and I were able to land on through connections. Or let's say you do something really creative, like you get one lease and then you put more people into the apartment than there should be. I mean, you know, there's a lot of gray area. We try to do everything by the book. So, you know, we went for a rent-stabilized situation. And then everything else is being as robust as can be, redefining what it means to have a need, what it means to have a want. Most people, when they start on this financial independence journey, they can at least identify here's a need and here's a want. But what we had to do was even redefine what a need was. When I first went into this, I thought that it was a given that my apartment would be functional. <laughs> and then it's not. <laughs> a rent-stabilized apartment doesn't mean it's a nice apartment. Um, it was a walk up, so four flights of stairs up and down every time. There was uh, not a lot of repairs going on, so our bathroom didn't function well all the time. Uh, there was no dishwasher and um, a smaller fridge than normal, Lo no laundry services anywhere in the building. So, you know, we went out to a local laundromat. And also, even thinking in terms of transportation, Many people in New York City don't even think twice about taking an Uber when the subway is not available. For us, that was not an option unless you were sick. So <laughs> if we had to walk 20, 30 minutes to get somewhere, we walked 20 to 30 minutes. And when people first hear about that extreme frugalism, um, I've been called a cheapskate. I've been called cheap. And uh, I, I really want to emphasize that if you painted in that negative viewpoint and you see this as deprivation because you are you your your relative reality is somewhere up here and you know the, the standard living that I'm experiencing is lower than what you expected um, then it's not going to work you're going to be miserable it wasn't until I started gratitude journaling and using this um, technique that I call trigger action reward I talk about a, a lot on my blog where every time that I was triggered to feel bad about myself um, I used that same trigger to rewire my brain and do something that that made my situation better, that was frugal, that did save money. And then I rewarded myself mentally by having done that. And that and what I now call the hashtag I get to, um, I didn't invent it, but it's a very great way to summarize it. Put, put all your ha I have to's into I get to statements. I have to go to work. It's now I get to go to work. I have to walk down four flights of stairs. I get to be able-bodied and walk down four flights of stairs. And that rewiring of my mind into gratitude, into realizing the abundance in my life was a what really allowed me to pare back on those expenses down to the very, very bare minimum that made sense for my husband and myself. Wow. I mean, that yeah, that's super powerful. And I like that mindset shift that you're talking about. I mean, even now, especially with what's going on, um, you know, we used to say a lot, I have to go to work or, mm -hmm. you know, I have to do this. And now we're saying I get to go outside or I get to, you know, finally go back to work. So it's kind of sometimes we have to have something external introduced into our fam, uh, to, into our lives for that to trigger. But you're saying just trigger it internally um, in your day to day and it'll become a habit for you to think that way. Is that, is that kind of right? You really hit the nail on the head. It's a habit. And I often encourage people to say, and I get to the first thing you get up in the morning, because if you start your day off on a positive note, it's just energizing. It's the, it's the healing that you're looking for that doesn't depend on other people's opinions of you. It doesn't depend on how the world chooses to label you. It's completely driven from within. And that's a sustaining source of energy that no one can take away from you yeah yeah I, I i agree and um definitely powerful and so emotions play a huge part with um your journey and how others perceive you etc so um can you talk about how you've been able to manage your emotions around finances and maybe uh, people's perspective either family or otherwise 
I am the more emotional of the two in the relationship. I often like to say, Mr. Save My Senses, devoid of emotions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as uh, neurological research shows, it is actually our emotional side, the right brain of the right side of our brains that allow us to analyze and take in information and make decisions. If we actually lack emotions, we also lack the ability in our brains to make the final rational decision. It's so counterintuitive, but I've been reading all about that. Boiling it down. Emotions are important. You should have your emotions. You should allow yourself to be vulnerable. You are valid in whatever you feel as a result of unfortunate or current circumstances beyond your control. However, you need to recognize when to stop letting the emotions rule your thinking. So something that I often say is put out a timer, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours, and go stew on all those emotions and all the anger and frustration and anxiety and let's let it run its course. And then when the timer hits, shut it off and say, okay, now I've ranted and cleared my head. I'm going to try to do my research and talk to people and try to make um, a decision that's not ruled by emotion because emotional financial decisions by and large from what i've seen from coaching dozens and dozens of people it's just it's not optimal it can lead you to make uh choices that land you in more hot water than it's worth yeah yeah definitely and and having yeah your emotions uh it's it's healthy to let them out like you said so i like that idea of letting them out it's okay it's normal we're all human um, but after 10 to 15 minutes of kind of uh, wallowing in your sorrows or, or letting them get the best of you, then you say, okay, you know what, we're going to do something proactive here and, and go from there. So that's, that's an amazing strategy. You've come up with some um, great uh, strategies for this uh, as far as mindset and helping others. Is this something that you go through in your coaching um, sessions? Yes. This is not from me. I, I happen to have landed on these strategies in my own struggle to, you know, be okay with being frugal and having the FOMO. And, you know, my friends graduate. I went to University of Chicago, Booth School of Business, one of the top MBA programs in the world. My friends, you know, some of them make a lot more money than I do. I, I make plenty of money. I don't, you know, I, I love my job and everything. But there are friends who show off everything that they do and the nice things that they buy and the houses and the vacations and whatnot. And um, getting into the mindset of gratitude and letting my emotions not cloud my judgment that I had to develop on my own. And then now in, in the past couple of years, I've been reading the actual literature that supported everything that I tried to do on my own. You know, I could have made this a lot easier for myself than reading a a bunch of books on psychology. It's funny because when people go into personal finance, they read books about finance. They read books about here's how to set a budget. Here's how to uh, pay off your credit card by interest rate or by smallest balance or consider investing like this. Very dry books about uh, numbers. No one talks about the mindset. I mean, I know there, there's some people who do it now, but I've been reading books like The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Um, Mindset by Carol Dweck, and uh, Viktor Frankl is uh, the the man search from for me is the most influential um, person in my life when it comes to mindset because it's from his writings that I learned. You may not be able to choose the situations and the circumstances that you are in, but you can choose your emotions. And as an emotional person blew my mind because I was like, no, 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 no. I can't choose my emotions. They just come and I can't control them and it just happened. And then I, I learned through therapy to control my emotions. And I would say that that in and of itself, that the therapy, the books that I've been reading, the struggles that I had to do on my own, all of that resulted in the trigger action reward technique. And yes, I definitely teach that to my clients. In fact, uh, when people approach me for help and I learn about their finances, I learn about their background, I probably spend 75% of my time addressing the mindset because I was like, if the mindset becomes healthy, everything else comes a lot easier. Right, right. Um, so, so somebody who is interested in getting coaching from you um, and is still on the fence about this FIRE lifestyle, maybe I haven't convinced them yet <laughs> and they want a little bit more reassurance. How do you go about um, maybe not convincing them, but 
seeing if that's something that they, uh, you know, works for them. You know, there's a lot of different fire types. So you can pursue fire, fat yeah. fire, you can go to slow fire. So there's a range there. Um, how do you kind of work within somebody's lifestyle or situation to, to, to help them figure yeah. that out? I'm an example of someone who's breaking a bunch of fire rules. If you really, I, I still work. Um, I still live in a very expensive part of the country. I don't need to be in New York City. And um, uh, I say work optional because I am currently on a maternity leave. I'm not getting paid. I chose to take, you know, up to a year off to be with my firstborn son. Congrats. It's Congrats. Yes, Thank amazing. You. Thank you. The, the question that I asked to figure out what people really want, I said, if money were no object, what would you do with the time that's given you? And, you know, a lot of people come up with really beautiful dreams, you know, caring for loved ones, uh, going to, out to do humanitarian work, or, uh, you know, finishing this creative project they've had in their heads for years, um, being more present for their children, et cetera, et cetera. Fire isn't about being a monk and being that frugal person forever. It's about buying time back from your life. It's about the fact that the rat race doesn't have to be the rat race. You can still do a part-time job, get the health insurance, because I know healthcare really sucks in the United States. And you can still have that healthcare and say, but I know I chose to do this laid back job so I can get an extra 10 hours a week out of it or something. Mm -hmm. Or for me, it's, it's having that time with my son. For my husband, it is the, uh, real, not so much reassurance, it's this it's the peace of mind knowing that even if we were to lose our jobs, which COVID, I mean, COVID poses a very, very scary uh, situation for anyone. I, like, I, I think anyone could be affected. And we're sitting here going, we're so thankful for our jobs. And we also recognize if we were to lose them today, we're not going to be in a lot of trouble. So what is it that you want from your life? What is it that you value? The coaching and the stuff that I write is all about, well, Make sure that the way you spend your time, your resources aligns with those values and you're not just going through life just because everybody else is doing the same darn thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's powerful. It's um, being purposeful with, what, with your money, with your time um, and um, what, what you value. So I like that. And um, I've struggled with that as well. When I first started, I mean, I didn't realize that there was a concept like fire. I just yeah. thought that, you know, when I chose my career, I said, I'm going to be working until I'm 65. I better like what I'm doing. So <laughs> that was the mindset I had. And then a few years into my career, I saw, I found the fire movement and I was like, really, I can get off the hamster wheel. That's, that's a thing. Yeah. So um, yeah, that opened my eyes. So just that eye opening experience, but then there's um, the you know, the other issues with um, the mindset, I guess, is what family might think, or what friends might think. Um, so that's something that I struggled with. I haven't completely opened up to family. Um, they don't really know what I'm pursuing, even though I believe in it. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. But it's hard, because you're living a double life sometimes. Um, so <laughs> do you does your family um, know or understand the fire movement? Uh, my, my parents did not and still do not. I really loud my father's efforts. You know, he didn't start investing until close to age 40. He truly, truly a rags to riches kind of story. He is a multimillionaire today. He's done very well for himself and he enjoys life. You know, they buy nice, fresh groceries and they drink wine all the time and they do travel a lot and they enjoy life and they buy gifts for my little kid. And when they see, you know, the fact that I still am okay with eating frozen food or that I don't always drink, they're like, oh, Sean, you got to enjoy more. Like, why, why work so hard and not enjoy any of it? I get it. And uh, those little comments just add up each day. It's like, Sean, why aren't you doing this? Why, 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 why? And I recognize that people's opinions of how you choose to live are not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of them. Because my parents work so hard for everything, they like to enjoy it. It feels like so counter counterintuitive to their value system and I'm not living in the same way. This is what I would suggest for anyone who is facing pressure. And it's not just even on journeys to fire. People on journeys to pay off debt face the same exact thing. 
you can love the people who who are meaningful in your life, your your relationships with your families and your friends, and I know not everyone has uh, good familial relationships. You can love and respect those people and not live like them. I often change the subject. If people want to talk about my frugal, I'm like, oh, hey, what do you think about that latest like news article over there? You know, try to deflect a little bit. Or um, I also try not to complain about my frugality. I think uh, when people pick up on negativity, then they, they really poke at it. So in the beginning, yes, I complained a little bit about our dingy little apartment. I don't, I don't live in that apartment anymore. Then I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm just not going to talk about the crazy apartment that I live in, you know, because it's just going to raise more conversations than it's worth. And finally, I would say something, something, that, something that I just say to make myself feel a little bit better. It's like, well, opinions don't pay the bills most <laughs> of the time. I mean, my boss's opinion of me is very important because <laughs> my boss is paying my bills indirectly. Yes. Um, and your debtors, uh, sorry, your, your lenders, the people who you, you borrow money from, yeah, they better still think that you're worthy of credit. So that might be another one. But most of the time, I'm just like, opinions are opinions, and I choose not to be affected by it, but it is hard. This is an opinionated society. People want to talk and blurt out and tweet everything that they want to say. Uh, so shutting off is usually the, the number one thing, you know, just unfollow, mute, it's okay. Yeah, and, um, and that can be, I, I heard this term from another podcast. Um, they're called Friends on Fire. I, I love them and I've been on their show. So I wanted to kind of give this a shout out. Uh, they touched on a topic kind of like, called the fire extinguishers, which what are things that can put out your fire movement? Fire <laughs> I journey? like that. That's amazing. Um, so that, that, I thought that was pretty cool. And this, I think, is one of them. Um, not sure if they mentioned it, but family and friends and their opinion, their perspective on what you're doing can really put out the, the fire that you're, you're on. And, um, you know, and if you, like you mentioned, if you kind of open yourself up with that negativity and you kind of invite their opinions in, that can be um, something that you're not you're not doing that any benefits to yourself by doing that you 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 should show them the positives if that's what you want them to see and if you want them to be supportive in my opinion and and hopefully they'll see that and they'll see by example and they're gonna say hey what's going on with Shung over there she's she seems <laughs> a little happier than most people what's going on and so yeah, I, I think that that might be a good strategy as well I love that term, fire extinguisher. And I also want to raise and say, you know what? Not all fire extinguishers need to understand you at the end of the day. Sometimes you just, just let them be. There are many toxic relationships I have observed in the people that I coach, um, you know, just forms of uh, abuse of all kinds or just dysfunction or trauma. And you are not responsible to be the parent of your parents. You're, you're not responsible for parenting the trauma out of, your friends, for example. And so for that reason alone, I say, you know what? Um, sometimes you just got, got to recognize that's just a toxic person or a toxic situation and put up some boundaries. Boundary mm -hmm. setting is very important. It's so healthy. It's so good for mental health. And you got to learn to do it. You have to enforce the boundaries because the person who hurts the most when boundaries are violated is you. And mm -hmm. so you have to be the enforcer. Yes, exactly. And, um, and touching a little bit about um, just fire extinguishers and things that can can uh, basically be an obstacle towards your fire journey. Um, I want to touch a little bit about struggles because a lot of people are struggling right now and it's tough. So it's hard to kind of bring up the topic of, hey, let's strive for financial independence. And then we hear 36 or, or I believe 36 million people at the moment are unemployed. Um, yep. So I wanted to kind of touch on maybe did you have any struggles? Because I think it's important. Every fire journey is going to have some struggles um, and they're different for everyone. So I wanted to see if there was anything that maybe particularly stood out for you and how mm -hmm. you overcame and how you continue to have that mentality and not let it derail you. Yeah. Towards the end of our most intense journey of fire, like the five years we were able to sustain 50% savings rate consistently, my husband lost his job and uh, he was unemployed for a very long time. Um, I don't want to, you know, dig it into it, but it's way longer than the average uh, unemployment for, for us. And at first I was like, okay, you know, honey, just go do your best, you know, go network, figure out. And I try not, not to be too involved, but the longer it dragged on, the more it affected me. I was 
doing the same kind of work I always did at work. It's you know very complex management consulting. And I was starting to operate under a brain fog. I would look at giant spreadsheets and a ton of research and not be able to make any conclusions from it. I couldn't write for the heck of me. My emails kept having all these errors. I kept messing up calendar dates. And I was like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> this is not me, but it keeps happening. And um, there's a really, really great article. I think it was New York Times or uh, was a research done a couple of years ago where they said people under less than ideal circumstances, whether it is poverty, uh, always like, you know, continual debt, financial stresses, divorce, abuse, whatever, those environments create so much stress that your body picks up that the stress, internalizes it, and actually causes your brain to make irrational decisions, no matter how smart you are. So I want people to understand that your struggles are real and they translate into poor mental and physical health. There's actual, like Dr. Caroline Leaf writes about this, how mental health literally changes the proteins and uh, reaction pathways in your brain to actually release different chemicals and um, things going on in your body. So absolutely, struggle is a part of life and we all try to avoid it, but it's here, it's inevitable, it's terrible. And you know what, if you guys don't like um, seeing, you know, someone else, you know, doing really well, mute it. Like, I don't need, I'm not asking people who are down on themselves to follow me. You know, if it, if it makes you feel bad about yourself, turn it off. If, if a really great friend just does something that triggers you, turn it off. Like the, the first, the first avoidance is always turn off the triggers. Then you have to learn to address your triggers. And now is a difficult time. Please, 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 you know, for anyone who's been furloughed or laid off or lost everything, whatever, this is not your fault. Coronavirus came out of nowhere. Like, yes. no one could have predicted this happening. It's not your fault. Um, try not to internalize too much. Try to just focus on one step at a time, an hour at a time, a day at a time. I know it's not easy, and it's not going to be easy for a long time. I'm running a giveaway right now. It's probably going to be closed by the time you um, publish the podcast. But, you know, I'm seeing stories from so many people who've lost so much and it's 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 hard um and it's hard to stay upbeat and that's why i i again i go back to victor frankl because he writes about people in nazi concentration camps not to bring all the tone of this whole thing down <laughs> but the thing is like even in difficult circumstances like these we can still try every day to rewire our brain to at least emotions that can sustain us rather than emotions that drain us so that's uh, my encouragement. I mean, that's, yeah, that's amazing. And, and to unpack a little bit of, uh, about, you know, all that is I'm going to have the, the, those resources in the show notes because those books, I need to also read them as well. The philosophy or the, the mindset is so important. Um, but also what you touched on is not blaming yourself for, for what struggle you're currently going through. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially with this pandemic, like you said, it came out of nowhere. It's affecting millions um, this is not your fault. The position that you're in, um, you know, yes, maybe you could have done certain things differently, but nobody could have predicted what mm -hmm. we were going to go through um, these last few months. So uh, that that giveaway that you're doing, I, I saw it on Instagram and, and I hope to to lead my audience to that as well, because I think it's amazing. You're giving away um, money that you've been able to fundraise and uh, you're giving it away to people who need it the most. Uh, for mm -hmm. their groceries or their rent, um, et cetera, mm -hmm. or their gas to get to, to work when they're just starting out again. Um, so I, that's the stuff that I really admire. And that's why I wanted to bring you on. Um, but uh, and then the other last part that I kind of wanted to unpack a little bit is the social media aspect of it. Because I've heard it time and time again, that social media is our highlight reel. That's what mm -hmm. we put. And, you know, not for everybody. I've seen where you put things uh where you've struggled and I like that because it's important. But for most, they see highlight reels, everything, the best of someone's life and they don't see the other side. Um, so turning that off, if that triggers you, it, I think is super important as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then, well, so getting a little bit into uh, things that can motivate you throughout, like to push through the struggle. Uh, I know you have money mantras, um, are there any, you know, like favorite money mantras, anything that you kind of like a quote that stands out or something that's impacted you? Yeah, I mean, I get to is the main one. Again, mm -hmm. you know, someone please tell me who invented this phrase. But uh, <laughs> it, it's the main one. I get to do this. I get to do that because it also allows me to recognize very, very basic 
things like clean water. We, we have clean water and soap in this country. A lot of countries do not. Or um, the fact that, yes, we have functioning hospitals or we don't have rampant violence and warfare on our soil. Again, this is speaking as an American. Um, that being said, I, another technique um, that I used, and this is actually during my infertility journey. So a lot of people who follow me on Instagram for a while also know that my baby came about through IVF, but IVF was not successful for a long time. And uh, in those moments of grief and mourning, another thing that I learned, a coping technique was I reached out to my close friends and instead of like wallowing about my pace, which I was in a lot of pain and they knew, I said, what's going on in your life and how can I pray for you? I'm a Christian. So for me, prayer is a very important part of my spiritual life. And my friends went through stuff too. Like I have friends with um, cancer or their parents have cancer. I have friends who lost jobs. I have friends who are so are going through their own infertility journey, or maybe their children are not exactly the healthiest children in the world. And every morning on my walk to work, I would be praying for all my friends as I, as I walked. And doing that allowed me to shift the focus away from the internal angst that was going on and care for people that I really, really cared about. And that, um, maybe that this is not something that everybody wants to do, but I always say, you know what, it's, it, it helps to have community. You, you need to have people in your field, your supporters. You cannot do any of this alone. And if you don't have people in your corner, you know, at least identify the people who are not in your corner and yeah. reduce your exposure there. Uh, sometimes new friends present themselves. When I started this journey and I realized I was just like trying to hang out with the people who are spending a lot of money because I wanted that lifestyle. And then I noticed like there were friends who were texting me all the time. Hey, Sean, can we like meet up or I would love to see you again. And I realized these were actually the, the relationships I should be maintaining because these were people who really wanted to see me regardless of what I was going through. And uh, really flipping that mindset also allowed me to not be so alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, having a support system is, is so important. And, and like you said, identifying who is there for you, um, regardless of uh, whether you have to go out to spend money with them or if it's like, uh, retail therapy, uh, like some friends like to do, hey, let's go to the mall. But, you know, the ones that are there for you, regardless of the situation, that's, that's key. So that's, that's a really good point. Um, and it seems like you have like big philan philanthropic, I think I said that right, philanthropic yeah. dreams. Um, it seems like you have a big heart. And, and I love that, that, that you're trying to give back. Um, it, is there anything that you're, you're trying to do in the future? I mean, you're, you're still um, fairly young, uh, very young. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I got to be careful, you know, so, but, but yeah, so I wanted to know kind of like what your philanthropic dreams were. I think you've mentioned that before. Yeah. My husband once heard of, uh, he's also at a consulting firm that they were engaged by a Russian oligarch and the project was this Russian oligarch did not know how to be happy and wanted this firm to tell them, how, how to be happy. And I was like, what kind of project is this? <laughs> um, the conclusion that they made was that uh, he should give his money away. And this is actually said in the Bible. So for me, it's, a, it's already been pounding my head since I was young, but also it was counterintuitive because like you, you would think that money and career success and all of that is actually what brings fulfillment and joy into one's lives. And you know, my God says that's, that's not it. And so recognizing my privilege and recognizing the gifts that have been bestowed upon me, I uh, have philanthropic uh, dreams, not only to give away all the profits that I make from Save My Sense, you know, during the course of running Save My Sense, but also to raise money for scholarships. I'm so inspired by Sylvia Long. She uh, died a couple of years ago. She is a um, legal secretary out of Brooklyn, lived frugally all her life, never made six figures, left behind an $8 million scholarship wow. for education. Absolutely wonderful. And I want to emulate that. I would like to also, again, give away most of my wealth over my lifetime um, to support education, which I really, really believe in, uh, because I do think that can make a huge difference in someone's lives. It definitely made a, a big difference in my father's and myself. And also because I do subscribe to the idea, because I have experienced nice things. I have gone on nice vacations and I have owed nice objects and done you know fancy dining experiences 
those things are temporary joy. Um, you know, you get a spike in your dopamine center. You're like, rah, rah, that was awesome. <laughs> but if you, you do it once, it's like a drug. You got to do a better and bigger next time to get the same level of pleasure. Whereas giving, no matter how small an amount, is objective in a positive way. It's you're making difference in someone who doesn't have what you have. And uh, that, that joy is... Um, it's so beautiful and I really recommend it for people who don't have joy in their lives, but can give a little bit, try giving your money away. It probably is the answer that you're looking for. And, and that's so counterintuitive, right? I mean, a lot of people think of the uh, fire movement and they say, we're a bunch of people that just like to hoard money or we're cheap and we don't want to spend our money. We just want to keep everything. But you're not the first person and, and there's so many people in the community who actually want to give away their money. They're just trying to secure themselves, it seems like, first, make sure that they're in a good position. And then once that happens, I mean, it, a lot of people who reach financial independence at the late 20s, early 30s, even mid 30s, they have so much more time left. And that mm -hmm. money is going to continue to compound. Sometimes us being overachievers, we over uh save and then we realize wait we are actually not going to spend this amount of money you know a lot of people with fat fire dreams they you know may reach that point and then they don't know how to spend the money so you end up with money left over and what i've uh, i piggyback on that thought process is fulfillment comes a lot from giving from making a difference and then fulfillment is really where you can derive happiness uh, from what i've seen and that goes back as well to that psychological and mindset um, thinking but uh, but yeah that's great and and I think it's super important what you're doing and I hope you get to realize all those dreams thank you thank you all right and um, so as far as after you've reached you know the the conclusion that you're gonna go push through the struggle and you want to know okay what can I do in order to really get things done I know that you're into some productivity tips I know that you're, you're working on that. So can you share that with us? Yes. There was a running joke in college from one of my friends. She's like, Sean, I swear you have a twin running around the campus with you because there's <laughs> no way you can do everything that you claim to do in one day. And uh, so, you know, I used to be the master multitasker. I can do many things at once. Um, more recently, though, I've been really promoting, um, I didn't invent this concept, really great book called uh, Deep Work. Um, deep work and focused work, uh, thinking fast and slow, another great book that talks about this. And um, so nowadays for me, productivity is this, you set your priorities. Those priorities guide what your daily to-do tasks are. And you, you, know, you can use different systems, Pomodoro and Inbox Zero and things like that to actually figure out your, your day. And then at the end of it, you also have to not let pro, um, you have to not let perfection be the enemy of good enough and launch it, send it off, you know, get your feedback on it uh, right away. And so that, that's the system. And I had a, you know, a series on productivity on my blog. And uh, so, and I want people to recognize being productive and being busy are not the same things. And I also think that in the United States, there's a culture of worship of being busy. Fire is all about the opposite. It's about like leaning out and like chilling and all of that. So when I teach productivity, it is with the lens of make sure that you are putting time against your priorities. For me, it is being there for my child, building relationships with my husband and my parents and my friends. And yeah, also making sure that my costs are covered. So that's kind of like the cascading uh, sequence. And uh, if you can time block really well and be productive, then you can get more of what you hope to accomplish out of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, truly. And, and you, you hit it right on the head, too, because in this in, in our country, we have this idea where busy is a good thing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of times we're like, oh, we're too busy. We're too busy. But are we really busy or are we just filling up our time with things that we think are necessary but uh, aren't really? Um, I get a ton of emails all the time, and most of it is just promotional and social emails. And it's, it's tough to keep up. And, and my inbox actually gives me a little bit of anxiety when I see it, when I have over 30 emails that I haven't read and I know mm -hmm. I have to get to. Um, so I have been cutting down the emails, unsubscribing to things that I don't 
I don't find value in and I don't actually want to receive an email from. And uh, I've gotten it down to less than 10 emails a day. And it's made a huge difference on my life. I don't have that constant blinking on my phone telling me I need to check it. Um, so that's, uh, that's one tip that I would recommend as well to anybody. Just getting rid of the extra stuff that doesn't provide value to you, trying to streamline your emails. Um, one other thing that I've mentioned, I don't know if, if you do this, but the night before, if I want to get something done the next day, I realized my mornings are the, my most productive. Mm -hmm. So I try to set a list in the, uh, the night before of a few things that I'd like to get done for sure that day. And I try to knock that out at the beginning of the day, cross them off my list. And then I know the afternoon, it's gravy. Whatever gets done in the afternoon is, <laughs> you know, I can have a beer or whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, well, with a baby, your mornings are, uh, you know, dedicated to baby. I'm glad yes, I have a yes. little baby sitting right now. Um, I also say no one to stop. Some people grind and grind past midnight because you just, you're stuck. You can't finish it. I often try to, well, consulting has really long hours, but I try to send my teams home no later than midnight, 1 a.m. Because I know productivity just tanks after that. And there's nothing that's going to be good out of them. I'd rather the people try to get, you know, six, seven hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep, and come back a little bit more refreshed in the morning. And then, you know, usually something clicks by that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes your brain just needs that, those six to eight hours of sleep to, to regather itself. And then in the morning, you'll be surprised. Thoughts, your mind gets clearer. And you're like, wait a second. I don't think, even if I stayed up two extra hours last night, I don't know if I would have come up with this conclusion or I would have just put stuff that's just not good on paper. And yeah. so that's, that's a key tip to sleep. <laughs> what <a surprise>. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. And then speaking about, you know, like just overall health, I, I mean, this all means nothing like the financial independence journey. If you get to it and, or when you get to it, um, doesn't mean much if you're not healthy yourself, if you stressed and you're not taking care of yourself. Um, so what have you seen? I mean, healthcare is so difficult to manage in this, uh, in this country. There's so many different things that go into it. Um, can you share a little bit about how you've been able to get a grip on healthcare? Cause I don't think that's something that's talked about enough. Yeah. Oh, uh, healthcare is a four letter word in my <laughs> opinion, <laughs> especially in the United States. You know, I mean, I understand there's pros and cons to a privatized health care system, which is the U.S. versus a public health care system in other countries. You know, you pay either way. People just don't, in a public health care system, you don't see where your pay actually goes. In the privatized health care system, I would say you have to be your own strongest advocate. So, and also one in four health care bills are wrong because of some stupid, you know, miscoding or typo or just, you know, wires getting crossed. When I went through IVF, I kept my IVF binder. It's like this <laughs> thick, thick, thick binder of uh, some instructions on how to inject myself up, mostly bills, 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 and more bills that were just wrong. And I would watch them come in because I knew the prices of things. I knew my insurance. Thank God my insurance covered everything. But sometimes they would say that I have a bill. And then I have to back out time, leave a voicemail with the hospital, call my insurance company to figure out what's going on, try to connect the billing department and my insurance company together, but the billing department doesn't pick up. And uh, just, you know, just keep saying, this is not right. How can we fix this? Can we please take a look at it? Um, the hospital didn't believe me until I marched in one day with my IVF binder and I spread <laughs> out all the papers on the billing desk so she couldn't shoo me out of the room. I'm like, just please take a look at this paper that says I owe $10,000. That's not right. $10,000 is a lot. And like, uh, a CSR brushed me off. She's like, oh, you know, we'll take care of it. No, $10,000 is a lot of money. We need to address it. And um, yes, I'm a bossy lady. I'm very salty <laughs> about all of this. And New Yorkers are aggressive in general. So, you know, uh, that's, that's my personality. But it's, it's so important to advocate because it is such an unequal system. And it is tough that your insurance is tied to your employment. So if anything, I would prioritize healthcare, get second opinions, do your research, prices can wildly vary for the same procedure in the same city. Like some, some doctors just choose to bill more for it and some choose to bill a lot less. I don't know how, I just, I just know that that's how it works. And uh, you know, uh, some drugs can be had for less from one pharmacy versus another. There are better tools like GoodRx is one of them. And uh, you know, there's always people trying to solve it. It's 
it's such a complex system. It's just, there's no one, one fixed solution. So I would say for now, just do what you can to advocate, work the system, ask other people for help. Um, and if, if anything, if you are not dying, if you're not in an emergency situation, don't agree to treatment or drugs immediately. Always say, okay, gather the information, do another call to your healthcare provi uh, health insurance provider to make sure what is and what is not covered before you undergo anything elective. So that by being prepared, you, you're saying it was $10,000 of incorrect charges that were being billed yeah. to you? Yeah. And $10, were you able to reverse that and get them to fix that? Yes, they fixed it. Oh my gosh, that is awesome. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and, and the fact that you were prepared with the binder probably instilled a little bit of fear in them, right? Like, <laughs> oh, we, we better not mess with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's, and it's, it's hard because you're also the sick person because yeah. of HIPAA rules. Um, it's very rare for me to see you know, a spouse or a family member being able to advocate. Usually you can for your child. But even my husband couldn't get through because they're like, oh, you know, do you have the power of attorney? I'm like, oh, my goodness. So mm -hmm. it, it's hard. You're the sick person and you're also trying to advocate. So take lots of notes and just don't take no for an answer until you know it is actually the answer. Yeah, they don't make it easy. And uh, I'm a pharmacist, so I, I know exactly what a lot of people go through with prescription costs. I mean, I've, I've written a, an article to try to help people. Um, from what my perspective is, and GoodRx is in there, a lot of switching from brand to generics, a lot of manufacturers will offer uh, help as well, copay assistance, and things of that nature. So just Googling quickly, you know, your medication, if it's a brand, and then ma manufacture a coupon, you would be surprised a lot of these coupons could save, I've, I, every day I save people hundreds of dollars uh, with these coupons, just by finding it for them, because they, they are not aware. And, and it's not like, in the commercial, they don't advertise that to you. They advertise, just ask your doctor for it. Yeah. So that's, that's my way of helping. You mentioned CPT codes, is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, I blogged about using CPT codes, and I believe also uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not a doctor. IDC 10 codes, I think what they are now. Mm -hmm. um, there are codes associated with procedures and with di diagnoses. And those are the codes that translate into what an insurance company can or cannot cover. And it's, um, uh, these are, this is one set of codes for the entire country. So everyone at, at the very least uses one system consistently. Uh, that being said though, the doctors that uh, suggest um, procedures and diagnostics for you, you can always just ask them, um, can I please get a list of all the codes involved? And that allows a, a health insurance plan to be more accurate in telling you what degree they cover each of those things. And um, uh, thankfully, my IVF clinic actually gave us the list of codes up front. But I remember when I had uh, my root canal and also when I was, my husband was going in to get like a sprained uh, shoulder checked out and they wanted to do an MRI or something like that. We're like, oh, oh MRI. Um, so we, we, yeah, we did a lot of calling, wasted a lot of our time, but it was all to avoid like situations where you just get billed for something that shouldn't have been billed in the first place. Right. So, so you recommend before going to the doctor's office or whatever treatment, call them, ask them what typical CPT codes are used or what treatments are usually recommended during that visit. Then you'll call your insurance just to get an idea of what is covered, what isn't. And that way you can go in there knowing, you know, exactly what they're about to recommend, what they're about to do and how that's going to affect, you know, your cost. And then if they pop something up, in the middle of the consultation, you kind of just hold them and say, hey, can we do this next time? And then you yeah. do the same thing. Yeah. Um, for example, some labs, even during pregnancy, are optional. Not, not all scans have to be done. Not all blood work has to be done. So I often say, is this, uh, is this blood work necessary? Is this essential or is this optional? Like just even asking that before, like they take your blood away from you, um, <laughs> it, it can save you a couple hundred dollars here and there as well. Wow. Awesome. And I mean, even if you spend five hours or 10 hours 
trying to accumulate that binder and make phone calls, et cetera, you save $10,000. I mm-hmm. mean, that, how much is that an hour? That's like $1,000, <laughs> $2,000 I don't make anywhere hour. close to that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and definitely not after tax. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's important to advocate. And I know it's hard, um, but I have a friend who, you know, spent months and months advocating for her very sick child to receive at-home care paid for by uh, Medicaid, for example. It, it is common, you know, this is a federal system. We have different standards by state. So uh, just keep at it and do the research, Google and see what other people have done. I've even discovered, for example, I was asked to do a um, experimental genetic test um, that used my blood and my husband's blood rather than anything from our baby to check for potential genetic abnormalities. And uh, there's a lot of those tests out there. The I got a provisional bill from the testing company for $7,000. I was like, this is not what I signed up for. I was not signing for a $7,000 bill. I thought our most was like a few hundred. I yeah. Googled the name of the company. I Googled, you know, did anyone else go through this? Apparently, yes, um, because it's experimental. Um, it, it sometimes doesn't get covered by, by the health insurance company. But they said, call the customer service line of the genetic test company to see what they can do for you. So I wrote a very nice email, you know, talking about my IV attorney and how I did all my research and I really appreciate the services they provide, but I really hope I'm not paying $7,000 for this. And turns out the customer service got back to me right away. It's like, oh, you know, I'm really sorry about that. That shouldn't be right. At most, you'd be responsible for $250, which I thought was way more reasonable. And actually in the end, it ended up being covered anyway. So, but even doing that to make sure you're not on the hook for $7,000, is very important. Yeah, yeah. And and it seems like you've got a good strategy. You go in there, you know, with a nice attitude first, it seems like you try to because, you know, we've, I've been blacklisted. Uh, my wife is, you know, we sometimes call, uh, you know, we had an issue with the travel agency that we were trying to cancel, etc. And then by the end of it, I think we made like seven calls, we got blacklisted. So, uh, important not to go in there a little too hot. Um, and try to give them um, a chance to reverse what they might have messed up. You know, we're all human, and they might have just not realized that they were charging you when they they didn't have to or they shouldn't have. Yeah, and it's it's usually also not the CSR's fault that, you know, they're the customer service rep. They're here to help solve the problem, but they shouldn't be the one that you pick on. And they get angry customers all the time. And so I've found that if you keep your voice calm, take a deep breath, mute and then scream on the phone um, and, you know, try to be nice. It, it can make a huge difference in their willingness to help you. Definitely. Um, well, that, that is awesome. So I think we got a lot there and, and I hope this um, helps my audience. And um, I want to end with just a few questions. Um, you mentioned a lot of books and I'm going to have that in the show notes below so that everybody can find them. Um, but what is your personal recommendation for maybe a book? Um, to get people started, um, it could be personal finance, it could be mindset. What what would you recommend for someone? Yeah, yeah just starting out. Two books. One has no numbers in it, which is great. The Millionaire Next Door. Uh, I think that was the most influential book in terms of me understanding how uh, gathering wealth in an ordinary circumstance works. And yeah, there's plenty of people who are millionaires from being teachers and and uh, non six figure jobs. The other book, which is more on the mental side, I would say, I would recommend starting with the book the um, called Mindset by Carol Dweck. Very, very famous book. It, talk, it addresses mindset in three areas, education, sports, and business. Um, how to adapt a growth 